Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Happy New Year, Pacific Northwest. It's time for Happy Hour Radio. I'm your happy host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and... uh, well, you're your resolute ranger for the new year. Uh, it is the new year, and I'm sure we have all new resolutions uh, to take better care of our bodies, to to be more loving, to uh, be more friendly, uh, or to eat better and drink better and travel more. And there's some great places to travel. You can go to New York for the Vin Expo event. You can go to Walla Walla for their spring series. And you can uh, think about uh, the post-holiday season, getting some exercise. Um, but when we think about the holidays, of course, we're talking about uh, time for family and friends and reflection and uh, history and sharing. And of course, it gets cold outside. We, our bodies crave a little more, perhaps a little more flavor, a little more fat, a little more comfort, whether it's butter and mashed potatoes or garlic rubbed uh, prime rib. And a lot of times there is a hearty beverage to accompany that lovely meal. Um, and many times it tends to be red because red wine seems to warm us more than white wine because white wine we serve chilled for that matter. But uh, of course, champagne warms everybody's heart. And uh, when we're, we ever open up a bottle of champagne, we hear a special sound. It's called pop. And that's because it is the release of a cork. And when you think about uh, all the millions of wines out there in the world, or millions of bottles of wines, um, think of how many uh, are closed with a cork. And, and here in Washington State, we had a company called uh, New Cork or something, and they made a plastic cork, and, and that didn't go very well. And, um, you know, the best thing, and they say in marketplaces, the competition. I know that cork has been, uh, we'll get a little history about cork, but um, we had this screw cap thing come, come into the scene, and it's sort of changed up the game forever. Everybody, and that's really exciting because basically the consumer wins. There's been a lot of uh, history with cork, and it's a sustainable thing. It's a live entity. It grows on trees per se, and that's one of the few things that does grow on trees. And I'm really excited to have Peter Weber, who is the executive director of the Cork Quality Council, and he's calling from California tonight. Hey, Peter, welcome to Happy Hour. Well, thank you very much, Christopher. Glad to be here. Yeah, so it's very exciting, and. Um, I tell you, I host uh, um, an advanced sommelier, and I host a wine recognition program, and, and uh, some people call those things wine competitions. I tend to use wine recognition program. And uh, I started this program in 2006, and I can tell you, in the last 12 years, the uh, the number of corked bottles has gone down dramatically, which is really, really cool. Um, but we, we'll talk about the positive things of cork. Cork grows on trees, and we think about global warming. Trees are an important part of it. So uh, Let's talk about the history of cork. What do you know about cork, Peter? Well, I mean, obviously cork has been uh, around uh, for thousands of years and been used uh, uh, as a closure for different uh, jugs and whatnot in ancient Greece and Rome. But it's it's basically uh, been prominent in the wine industry since people started using glass bottles, which is, I guess, about 250, 280 years ago. Some people... Uh, some people take the origin of cork back to Dom Perignon, uh, where he had to find a, um, a, a kind of forceful way to keep his sparkling wine uh, from popping out of the bottle. And uh, so he kind of invented 
suspended the wire hood and used corks for that. Ah, oh, the muse of the cage, the muselet. Uh. Yes. Excellent. All right, so we're we're back in the ages of Dom Perignon. Um, and uh, when did the Cork Quality Council become uh, an entity? Well, we, we started back uh, in the mid-1990s, and that was pretty much at the time when uh, uh, there was uh, a lot of the, pretty much the introduction of plastic corks. And I think uh, one of their uh, uh, selling propositions was that there would be no cork taint if you did not use a cork. Um, which is partly true, um, but uh, I think the the group got together and they decided, geez, you know, my corks are great. It's the other guy's corks that are a problem. And we sort of formed a group so we could have some standardized uh, quality control because nobody ever asks uh, uh, when they see a bad cork, they don't ask which company sold it. They they pretty much hold it against the entire industry. And uh, we started conducting a lot of research into how cork taint occurred, how it was related to the cork, and uh, came up with some new ways to uh, um, test for it. And we've really had some pretty good success. And by uh, our measurements, since we started using this uh, uh, this method, uh, we've seen a, a 94% decrease in the amount of, of, of TCA, which is the chemical uh, responsible for cork taint, coming in on the corks that we receive uh, from overseas. Right on. Well, um, I know that TCA is is something that many uh, consumers probably don't recognize. They just go, "Why this this wine's not appealing to me for whatever reason." But let's talk about how cork is made and and who actually makes cork. Uh, you know, I don't know that everybody knows where what country is the the dominant cork producer. Um, but let's go. Let's talk about how cork is made and where it's made. Sure. Um, well, the cork tree is fairly indigenous to. Uh, to much of the Mediterranean region, but uh, the majority of the cork is, is made in uh, Portugal, and uh, after that would be Spain. Um, we have uh, had members in the Cork Quality Council who've had uh, uh, plants in Italy, uh, Sardinia in particular as well, and I, I believe there's also a, a couple of cork factories in France. So it's mostly coming from sort of the the eastern uh, Mediterranean, the northern part, and uh, uh, it's made very simply. Uh, the cork bark is uh, very thick, and uh, it is peeled off the tree about every ten years. And it's at that point, it's as the bark is as thick as a wine bottle. I mean, so as a uh, cork is wide, and the the uh, bark is cut into strips, and uh, the little cylinders are punched out with very sharp knives. Interesting. So, um, how large is a cork tree, and how long does a cork tree live? Is I know that oak trees might live to be a hundred, or maybe aspen trees maybe forty. But tell me about the cork life of a cork tree. Well, they they can easily uh, exceed two hundred years. They they look a lot like uh, uh, in, in California. We have a, a valley oak, which is sort of a uh, uh, a, a wide branching cork tree. Um, it, it, they look like that. They're 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 probably more like a white oak than they are a pin oak or or that sort of thing. But they look like an oak tree. Um, they they are not deciduous, so they do keep their leaves all year. Um, and uh, like I said, they can easily uh, uh, exceed two hundred years. And some of them can be quite big. Uh, we I see them in the United States, and they seem to be a little bit larger. I think they get a lot more water here. Uh, it's fairly arid where the trees grow in, in Portugal and Spain. 
I was curious because it's. I know I've been to Spain and Portugal both, and uh, especially down in the south, and and uh, it can be very warm. And it's interesting to think that because the the bark is is so spongy and it, it has a lot of what we'll call air pockets. But what's the wood like? I know that in my early childhood days, I would have balsa wood airplanes, which is a little light piece of wood. But it is cork tree wood. Is that soft and spongy too, or is it actually hard? Well. To be honest, uh, in the cork business, you never really see the cork wood. We just <laughs> we, uh, we 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 take the bark off and hope nothing ever happens to the wood. But uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it, it's it's standard uh, oak. Uh, it's very hard. It is a hardwood tree, and uh, uh, the bark is, is special. It's sort of uh, you know there's some some trees. I guess I would think of like a redwood tree where they where where the Mark seems to take a direction that it's very thick and protective. Sure. I, I think uh, the, the uh, cork, arc, cork bark is, is thick to retain moisture and to protect against fires. Right. And now, and when I think of, uh, I was speaking with a, um, a PhD, and we were talking about maple syrup and maple, maple trees and when you would tap them and why and what sap does. And understanding that cork is also a protective barrier for the trees, um, is there any specific method for uh, removing the cork from the tree or the bark from the cork tree? And do you take the whole? Do you go all the way around, or is there? Do you like only do the southern exposure or something like that? Well, I do go all the way around, and uh, we we usually leave the bottom six inches or so towards the ground on the tree, and that's one of the things that has reduced TCA because that the the bottom near the ground tends to have more microorganisms uh, than. The, the bark above. That's where the dogs uh, dogs can <laughs> find the tree. Right. Um, but basically, they, they make a, a vertical cut and uh, uh, all the way down to the uh, tree's cambium, uh, not not damaging that. And uh, they basically take the, they, they usually use an, a specialized axe for that. And, and this axe has got a very wide uh, blade because they, after they make the cut, they use that blade to sort of pry the bark off all the way around the tree. So they'll they'll pull out a uh, a uh, basically if they're doing a really nice job, they'll get one piece of uh, bark that had gone all the way around the tree, and uh, so it's, it looks pretty good. Kind of like those little uh, nectarines we get or tangerines we right. get in the <laughs> one special right. uh, skin. Um, very interesting. So we take the skin off and then. Do you lay it flat, and do you go into it perpendicularly, or do you pull the cork in from, say, top to bottom? Well, uh, an important step is uh, to boil the boil the cork, because that tends to inflate the cells and flatten the wood out and make it a little thicker as well. Interesting. And once this is boiled, now you've got a flat plank. If they saw that into strips that are as wide as the cork is going to be tall, that they put it on its side and they punch the uh, corks out. And they're punching the corks with the bark side um, uh, to the side. You, you you want to make sure that right. the channels of the bark are not going to uh, let the uh, air into the wine or wine into the air. So it's, it's basically... Um, uh, the lenticels are coming from the bark straight into the tree. And so... That's uh, 
the, the cork is punched so that those lead distills are going sideways. Got it. Okay, so you're basically going from top to bottom, which is interesting. Now, uh, you know, it's interesting because we, we think of cork and cork floats. So when you say boil it, do you actually have to pin it down or weight it down in some giant vat? Um, I, I don't understand this boiling thing. Well, I, you know, I must admit, I never really thought about the boiling, but actually they <laughs> put them in big cages, and they put the whole cage in, into a, a rather large uh, vat of boiling water uh, where it, it stays for several hours. It takes a while to get the, to get the heat into the middle of the, uh, of the cork bark, so it takes a little while to, to boil that. And that's pretty much the... Uh, that's pretty much it for the uh, uh, technical aspects of preparing the cork. I mean, it's uh, it's very uh, very basic and natural. And it's it's interesting too. So if if we were to have an expert cork peeler or bark peeler, um, do they have a special name? Because I know that there's the Himador in in uh, tequila. They talk about the guys who cut the agave cactus. But is there a special name for these guys? Yes, there is. And unfortunately, this escapes me right now, Christopher. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I should know because we we at the, at the Cork Quality Council we we put on demonstrations every now and then, and we always bring somebody over because there's there's no way that uh, uh, we're going to let somebody uh, try to become an expert at doing this on the job uh, because the last thing we need is a need is a damaged uh, cork tree. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, these guys are these guys are very good, and uh, uh, I, I wish we had a few people here who could do this, but uh, <laughs> so far this is a this is a foreign science. I'm sure. And so, at the end of the day, how big a piece of that cork bark is it? Is it a, is it like a piece of plywood? Is it that large, four by six or something like that, or three? What's the typical size that you're looking for? Well, when they're being stored, they're often say eight feet by three feet. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think anything bigger than that probably would be not stack up well. And they're obviously smaller pieces, but. It's probably most efficient if you start that way, and then they they saw it into pieces that that are easier to work. Interesting. All right. Well, we're going to take a little break, but when we come back from the break, I want to talk really about uh, some of the the styles of cork because there's so many different bottles of wine. Some corks are long. Some corks seem to uh, actually like the champagne corks and and how these are produced. Because I don't know that people actually understand, you know, how they get that thing in the bottle. Because um, it'll be fun to talk about. Speaking with Peter Weber, the uh, executive director of the Cork Quality Council, and uh, we're talking on about the cork trees and how they're made and how great. They they are. It's sustainable and helping our climate. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Hope you're having a great Saturday night. Time for round two. And uh, hope you got something tasty in your glass or popping, pulling the cork. I've got Peter Weber, the uh, executive director of the Cork Quality Council. And um, we're chatting about how corks are made, why the, why the industry has changed. I mean, this, this uh, council became an entity in the 90s. And uh, the, things have really gotten better for the world of, of wine because there were some some corks that were very inexpensive and people didn't think about them because they're looking for value. But sometimes little bugs get in them. And we'll talk about that. But let's talk about trees. And with global warming, Peter, how do cork trees help us? Well, I think the primary way is, you know, it's a, it's a fairly large um, 
uh, carbon sink. It's uh, I, I know that I was looking at a study from Price Waterhouse uh, where they uh, calculated there was 4.8 million tons of CO2 uh, absorbed by the uh, cork forests in Portugal alone every year, and that's only about uh, one third of the total cork uh, forest. So it's so we're talking about 15 million tons of, of CO2 being absorbed by cork trees. Very interesting. I'm I'm always curious. Uh, you know, I'm six six one, about two twenty. <laughs> I wonder how many tons of CO two I'm putting out a year, <laughs> just for you know, for reference. I want to know how I can do my part, hold my breath a little longer, or something. Um, but good to know. So, uh, how many trees are there? You think uh, cork growing trees? I mean, I, I saw something in in the material I was sent, um, but I would love to hear it from you. I mean, how many corks are available right now? Well, I, you know, I. I think that we're probably, last year I've heard estimates someplace around 12 billion corks um, were, 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 were sold. Um, and there's, frankly, a lot more trees. I mean, we could make more than that because, they, uh, you know, if there's not a home for uh, the wood that can make uh, wine corks out of it, it's going to be used for flooring or bulletin boards or things like that. Most of that is made from scrap from the um, wine cork production. But uh, um, the cork forest, is there, there's a lot of it that's not even being harvested. Wow, interesting. Well, I guess that's good. So we have a little reserve. It's, it's kind right. of like a petroleum reserve uh, in a different way. Well, you know, as a sommelier, um, a lot of times they've called us cork dorks because we are totally interested in what's uh, beneath that cork. Um, but there are a lot of different sizes of corks. And how many different con- uh, companies are there, to your knowledge, that produce corks? Is this like uh, car companies? There's 40 of them? Oh, there, there are hundreds of them. Um and um, in fact, we have six members just here in California, uh, and they're they're large enough to open up offices in this in this country. Um, uh, I, I'd say there's some consolidation going on, but there are still uh, hundreds of uh, uh, cork companies uh, in Portugal and Spain. All right. Well, that's interesting. So when we open a bottle of wine, obviously there are different. Corks that or corks that look different. Some are little pieces put together. Some have flat ends and have little pieces put together. Some are totally look like a piece of cork, a piece of wood, and some are kind of shiny or or changed a bit. Can you tell me about some of these these cork names or these processes and and how these are are good for different wines or or producers or the benefits? Sure. I mean, we think that the, the you know the best closures is the traditional uh, natural cork, which is one piece of wood, uh, which I think most of your listeners are familiar with. But you do see uh, uh, other corks that uh, I guess we call them one plus ones, and, and that's where you have a, a, a flat disc on the t- on both ends, and the middle is, is a bunch of cork particles uh, glued together. And that's a good cork, and its, it's, it's rationale, frankly, was uh, a way to probably drop the price a bit. Um, currently, there's a lot of uh, um, cork you see that I guess looks kind of shiny with really small particles of, of cork, and that's what we call microaglo, and that's that's also been very popular. It's, it's been growing a lot in the past uh, five years, and uh, um, it's a very consistent product. And uh, I think for for uh, wineries that have high speed bodily lines. Uh, uh, and they they really need to have uh, you know a, a completely repetitive uh, um, uh, cork product in there so they can keep their high speeds up. That's been a good product. 
pretty neat. I mean, you sent me some great, great examples of different corks, and of course, you have uh, a couple samples here with what's called um, cork grades. Can you speak to some of this idea of grading a cork and and how that is uh, determined or um, considered? Well, cork grading is primarily uh, visual. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a matter of how many lenticels there are, little little pores. Um, how many little cracks there are, how open they are, how long they are. Um, and uh, the CQC has a standard uh, uh, grading uh, pattern, which we've not very, um, we didn't consult a marketing expert. We call them A, B, C, and Ds. And frankly, <laughs> uh, we don't we don't really sell many Ds. And, and at the D level, you know, you might want to not use that level on a cork or a wine that you expect to uh, last for seven or eight years, but um, A, Bs, and Cs—it's it, mostly a matter of of looks. Um, they all work well, and uh, uh, you know you can see when you look at a cork that has not yet been put in the bottle, you can see some lenticels and cracks that you will not see after they're put in the bottle because uh, a cork is generally 24 millimeters wide um, when it's delivered to the winery, and they compress it. Uh, so that it fits into a neck bottle that's 18 millimeters. Um, so it's uh, uh, a lot of those little pores will basically be closed up under the compression. Interesting. A, B, C, and D. I'm wondering if you changed it to double D, you might sell a few more. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the cork companies use a um, some. They use uh, usually floor um, is just like flour is the uh, top uh. grade, and then they they have extras and then supers and firsts and seconds and it goes on. It can it's uh, um, it can it can be fairly fanciful sometimes. It sounds like it. Uh, so as a small yay, the, the things I look for when I pull a cork and present it to a guest, I'm looking for obviously. Uh, uh, the integrity of the cork. Um, sometimes corks get dry and they break out. Um, sometimes they can uh, have s- seams in them and, and, and allow oxidation. And you get an old wine that has some wine missing. That ullage is a factor. But also, um, some of the challenges we have is is how to clean the cork. And uh, I know that it depends on storage. I've had corks in my or bottles in my cellar that I've pulled out and thought they were stored properly, and, and the corks have cracked. And it's always a kind of a bummer because you have to do a little more work. But what's more troubling was, was always when you, you had um, the little mutation of flavor, and that was caused by, you know, cork tree is an organic material. So tell me, how do you clean this to be something that the Food and Drug Administration or whoever's in charge says, hey, that's acceptable for human consumption? Well, it, uh, the cleaning basically uh, consists of, after the corks are punched out of the bottle, uh, out of the bark, they are... Um, uh, they get a wash, and that wash uh, will usually contain um, uh, sometimes uh, mostly hydrogen peroxide. It used to contain, uh, uh, some used to use bleach, which gave you a, a real white cork, but uh, uh, I think people frowned on the use of chlorine. Um, uh, some people use uh, metabio- meta- metabisulfide. Uh-huh. So there's basically a, a cleaning process that goes there. But the corks are, are dried down to uh, generally 5 to 7% moisture. And at that point, nothing more, nothing's really going to grow on them. Uh, when they leave the uh, cork company here, the CQC members 
uh, dose the bags with sulfur dioxide, which is going to retard uh, uh, any Microbial uh, growth yeah. during shipments. And then when it gets to the winery, there's usually an SO2 addition um, uh, at the winery as well, so that the uh, the headspace beneath the cork would be also somewhat protected. And at that point, you're dealing in an environment that uh, should be a very low pH. Um, and uh, uh, generally speaking, it's the, the microorganisms that, that end up growing in wine usually, I've, I've not seen that they're associated with the cork. I think, I think there's, there's some, you know, there's some yeast and whatnot that can live in wine. Uh, and, you know, you, as a, in your job, you, you probably smelled those before. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. The actual growth on the cork is, 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 is not, not a real concern. The, um, the, uh, the sources of cork taint, uh, we feel pretty comfortable that those occurred either in the forest or in the uh, uh, storage at the uh, preparing uh, cork, yard, cork place. But once, once the cork is punched, basically the moisture is so low that there's not going to be any microorganism uh, growth on them. Makes sense. Well, this has been very educational for me and very enlightening, and uh, I truly appreciate understanding more about the cork and actually seeing these examples. Um, I've seen a few magazines that sell winemaking supplies, and I've also seen how many different corks there are, so it's it's always interesting to see how people market um, a product that is ubiquitous in, in the industry. Um, I, I I appreciate your time and um, your your honesty about talking about some of the challenges. We we talk about cork taint and that's when the flavors are muted, but it, that has that has become less and less. And as a sommelier, I'm I'm really impressed by that. So uh, Peter Weber, executive director of the cork the Quality Cork Council, uh, thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. My pleasure. Hey, that's great. Hey, folks, hope you enjoyed the little download on the cork scene. And uh, stick around. I'm going to have uh, the CEO of Mionetto, uh, Prosecco, coming up uh, right here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI One and O Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. Time for round three. And uh, we're talking about international. We got the court guy on before. And now uh, I'm going to talk about our neighbors to the north in Vancouver. I've got Harry Hercheg, who's the executive director of the Vancouver International Wine Festival. It's a three, four, five day event up in Vancouver, BC. I was there last year. Really fun. Uh, it's international, but of course, you get a chance to taste some, some BC wines while you're there. So let's chat about it with Harry Hercheg. Hey, welcome to Happy Hour, Harry. Hi, Christopher. Great to be on your show. I've been listening to it to it the last couple of weeks, and it's great to be on. I love that. That makes you the millionth and one listener. So thank you very oh, much. Yes, yes. You just missed it. We had a big party for the millionth listener, but uh, so excited. So first of all, tell me about the history of the Vancouver International Wine Festival. It all started in 1979 with just one winery. Now we have uh, over 170 wineries. But back then, it started as a fundraiser for the Vancouver Playhouse Theatre Company. And a board member, John Levine, had this idea, hey, let's raise some money through wine tasting. So we had connections with Robert Mondavi Winery. And so they hosted a tasting for a couple of days. And it was such a big hit that we added more wineries. It became a California wine fair and a Pacific Northwest and B.C. tasting. And then 
in the late 80s, it became this big international festival with with uh, over 100 wineries, and and now we have 51 events, and total attendance is 25,000 people. And it's a really a loyal group of people who love to come back year after year. I've been going to this festival every year since 1987. I can't stop. Wow, and then, then you got a job too, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what, after putting in all those hours, uh, pouring wines for agents behind the tables, they finally said, give this guy a job. <laughs> well, um, how did you fall in love with wine? I fell in love with wine probably in my university days. Just uh, I was at the UBC student radio station learning about music and just, you know, learning about life and learning about things. And and my dad worked in restaurants and behind the bar his whole life. And I just had real fascination with, with food and wine and spirits. And I, I, I like alcoholic beverages. And I like to learn <laughs> a lot about them and where they come from. And also what's really fascinating is the people who make those products as well. Yeah, uh, meeting the people behind the products and the brands is, is always fun because you understand how hard they work, for one, and how passionate they are about certain things. Um, let's talk about the festival itself. So what are the dates of the festival? We're going to kick things off with the Bacchanalia Gala Dinner and Auction, which is a fundraiser for Bar on the Beach Shakespeare Festival, and that's on Saturday, February 24th, and then full-on festival week starting on the Monday, February 26th to March 4th, this Sunday. But the main weekend with the tasting room and all the wineries in attendance is uh, Thursday, March 1st to Saturday, March 3rd. All right. Well, I know that uh, we were chatting about Vin Expo New York uh, a couple weeks ago, and I know that's for trade only, but this Vancouver International Wine Festival is open to everybody, correct? Well, it has two components. It has a public component open to everyone, and then like Vin Expo, there's also a trade component on the Wednesday, Wednesday Thursday, and Friday. So whether you you enjoy wine one glass at a time or you're in the industry <laughs> buying cases upon cases or you're a wine educator or media person, we have a, we have a, a program and activity for, for everyone. Well, I know last year was really um, enlightening for me because it was about the wines of Canada being your, your main theme. What's the theme for this year, 2018? This year we're featuring uh, two countries that are side by side and have a long history on the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, Spain and Portugal. Oh, I love that. So uh, you've got the... Now, Spain is full of, of a host of different uh, regionals or uh, protected area of designation, uh, as is Portugal. Um, you have red wine and sparkling wines and white wines, of course, and fortified wines. So you're going to have the whole gamut of both uh, countries? That's what's going to be amazing. Just when you, as you touched upon, the diversity of what's possible... Uh, coming out of Spain and Portugal. We have 38 producers from Spain, 20 from Portugal, and it's going to run the gamut, like from Cava Sparkling, Sherry Fortified, uh, Port, Tawny Port, uh, Reds, Whites, uh, and the wines out of Spain and Portugal offer some of the, the best values, I think, for for enjoying wine. So, and And not only are they going to bring all their wines from various different regions, but one of the the main things about the Vancouver International Wine Festival is that a winery has to bring their owner or winemaker or senior executive from the festival to pour their wines. All right. So you, you get, get to, to connect directly to the producer. Yeah, that's great. I'm wondering if they're going to bring some of those cool, maybe you get them already. I know in the United States, these Blackfoot hams, <laughs> those acorn-eaten black hams, uh, the Iberico hams, we don't get them here. Do you get them in, uh, in the B.C. area? Yeah, we do. We're going to have some of the events. Uh, are going to have like a carver for Hamon, 
and the there's going to be a wines from Spain tasting station in the main tasting room, which will include uh, uh, one of those carvers, which is really cool to uh, to look at. And the I mean the ham is incredible. It is incredible, and uh, I certainly enjoy that. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed that I won't be able to make it up there this year. I've got uh, another engagement, um, but I had some great memories from last year. How do people get tickets, or even the trade? How does one register for the Vancouver International Wine Festival? All through vanwinefest.ca, and uh, at the top of the page of the homepage, there is uh, a public component, and for trade, it's Trade Days Conference. Right, so and if you're in the trade. You also have to uh, register with sure. your name, occupation, establishment, etc. <laughs> We're used to all that stuff down here with the with TSA and things like that. You got to give them your first child, your left arm, or something like that. Um, but what okay, I- we leave you intact, <laughs> it's not that rigorous. I love it. Uh, so last year, I enjoyed a bunch of master classes. You obviously had, uh, I think it was Rise Pender, who is a master of wine, and then Sazebo, um, who is a master sommelier, were presenting. Do you have some other uh, cognoscenti or luminaries uh, in the wine world helping uh, present some of these uh, programs? Yeah, our master classes on Wednesday are, fe- are going to focus on some of the, the main uh, categories and issues such as uh, Cava, uh, Portuguese varieties, Rioja, and Sherry. And we have uh, leading instructors from Wine Spirit and Education Trust going to be leading those master classes. But we're also bringing up Paul Wagner from from California, who's one of the best speakers about wine that I've ever heard. And he's going to be leading a theme plenary on the Thursday morning called Storied Iberia in Nine Wines. And what he's going to what he's going to do is do the history of Spain and Portugal in nine wines. So the wines will not be white then red; they'll be put in historical order. Okay. Wow, that sounds that's, really that's cool. Going to be, he's also going to be doing a public event called Voyage of Discovery, featuring uh, producers and wines from Portugal. But if you're in the trade, you definitely want to go go hear his presentation to our presentation on the wines of Iberia in historical order. That is uh, so cool. I've uh, had the opportunity to have Paul Wagner on the show before uh, via the phone call, of course, uh, just like now. And uh, quite, quite a great speaker, of course. His, his, uh, he's renowned for He's the Camus guy. Is that right? Um, I know him with uh, Balzac Communications. Oh, all right, but who's the, have been with Oh, I'm thinking Chuck Wagner. <laughs> oh, this is, ah. That's oh, I met Chuck, too, yeah. That's right. He was All up right. here when California was the theme. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. You know, it's funny. I've got a I've got a pal here in studio who's telling me, ah, come on, you gotta get it right. Anyway, um, so cool. So it's uh, the Vancouver International Wine Festival starts on Saturday, February 24th. It really runs from uh, all week with some dinners out at restaurants, etc. But uh, the heart, the meat of the classes, um, or of the festival, begin on Wednesday, the 28th. Yeah, it's not a leap year. It's Wednesday, the 28th. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it goes so through the all week. Component is Wednesday to Friday. So if you're in the business, it's during on those business days. And if you're coming up to make a weekend of it, uh, the tasting room is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, as well as Saturday afternoon. And uh, if you come and stay in a hotel here in Vancouver, we have a free ticket, a free ticket to the main tasting room if you book a hotel in Vancouver. Wow. And we also have um, not only the tasting room, but if you like to have some extra special bottles, lots of seating, lots of food, we also have this great uh, Delta Airlines tasting lounge on Friday and Saturday evening. There's lots of lots of different options. 
on that weekend, whether you preferred lunches or parties or tastings or seminars. <laughs> you like to just hang out. And as you saw last year, that convention center has an amazing view. Yes. So not only are you meeting the producers from around the world, you're tasting, you're discovering new wines, and you're having that hamon from the tasting station, you're going to have a seat and check out the view of the North Shore Mountains. Uh, it's a fantastic area. Of course, you're right there on the bay, um, and uh, you've got such a, a vitality uh, at the Vancouver International Wine Festival. And so, once again, the website is? VanWineFest.com. Dot .ca. .ca. And uh, tickets, I mean, the hotel ticket, but getting a hotel room, and then you get a free ticket. What does the ticket cost regularly? Uh, it's, it's on um, Saturday afternoons, a little shorter, $79. Saturday night is $99. And that's all in. That's service charges, taxes, everything. And that's in Canadian dollars. So you can just discount, I guess, 20 25% <laughs> for, for your... Uh, listeners. Fantastic. Well, Harry Hertzig. Yeah, that's right. Executive Director of the Vancouver National Wine Festival. Hey, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Great to be on. He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local, weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Well, there's always time for another round, and welcome back to our fourth and final segment. Uh, I got a longtime pal here, David LeClaire. If you've ever been to a wine event, he's probably been part of it, and he's got a super cool event coming up on uh, Sunday, February 11th. It's over at the Columbia Tower Club. Uh, let's have David talk about it. David LeClaire from Seattle Uncorked. Welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, thanks to be back. Nice to see you. Happy New Year and all that. We actually, this is our first time seeing each other since the New Year. It is, but it'll be many Except more for coming. on Facebook. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, obviously, See, there's uh, it's the new year, new resolutions. Um, everyone's on their diet, and, and uh, everyone's drinking better and, uh, and being nicer and pleaser and, and uh, uh, less less of a hole, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've got a cool event coming up, and uh, tell us about this Northwest Women's Stars of Food and Wine. Well, this uh, this event really celebrates women in the food and wine industry. So there's a lot of chefs now that are women in the Seattle area. And so this event will feature 25 different women that are uh, performing chef duties in some of our famous restaurants around the area and some not so famous. 25 chefs? Yeah, so 25 chefs. Uh, wow. So stations all over the top of the Columbia Tower Club to wander around and taste nibbles and bites from all these different women. And then uh, about the same number of wineries that are women winemakers. So that used to be the boys club and now women are making a huge impact on the wine industry as well so there'll be 25 stations of women winemakers and then we'll have women sommeliers running around doing little blind tastings so back when you and i became sommeliers there was only a few in town and now there's you know probably a couple hundred but a lot of those are women so you'll see quite a few of them at this event as well Awesome. So it's Saturday, February 11th. It's 1 to 5 p.m. up there in the Columbia Tower. Um, I'm sorry, Sunday, right? Yeah. Yes. So this is the week after the Super Bowl. Uh, so there's nothing going on, and you're already off your diet. <laughs> a perfect opportunity to actually um, do a afternoon happy hour. So who are some of the chefs that will be there? Well, you know, there's obviously going to be quite a few that are a little bit more uh, name brands, like Tamara Murphy from Terra Plata or Sabrina Tinsley from uh, Listeria Spiga, places like that. And then there's going to be quite a few that are uh, some cooked 
some chefs that do private uh, cooking in homes and for private parties and things like that. So maybe not everyone's heard of them, but they will after that day. So there's a, it's quite an array, and it's going to be fun. There's a few that are going to be pastry chefs as well. So there'll be some sweets for for everyone to kind of nibble on as well. Excellent. And some of the wine makers, these the the brand new wine makers that are penetrating this all males club that used to be. Thank goodness. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, there's uh, about 25 of them are actual women winemakers. The hard part when we were doing this was establishing who's really a woman winemaker because a lot of times it's a husband and wife couple and, you know, who's really doing the duty of making the wine versus, you know. So for we were really looking for who are the craftspeople that are, are behind this. And so there's quite a few, uh, like Mary from Dama Wines and uh, Mary Womack from Damsel Wines, things like that. So there's quite a few that are actually really just doing the wines themselves and not just part of a couple. That's awesome. And uh, how do people get tickets? So it's uh, right now there's the whole list of all of the uh, winer, winemakers and everything is going to be online through uh, Northwest Women Wine dot wineandfood.com wait right? st- say that again northwest women st- <laughs> it's on the card right there <laughs> I, I only cut it off that's a mouthful northwest women stars of food and wine right all right it's and that's long. nw women stars of food and wine yeah, it's pretty long this one's chopped <laughs> i know isn't that nice dot com yeah dot com okay <laughs> I'm sorry I had all the other Northwest wine <laughs> I know. You could also domains. go to Seattle Uncorked, which is much easier, and just type in Seattle Uncorked and look at all the events coming up, and that is one of our next events. All right, so this is a fundraiser because uh, in Washington State, we always have to have a 501c3 charity involved. And who's that? Uh, your selection this year? Well, it makes sense to uh, support a woman's cause, and this uh, charity is Women's Funding Alliance, and what they do is they really support a variety of women's causes. So they will be the beneficiary, and they will be there So all the women are helping other women is that a local um it is charity so they hope they help they are all uh, focused on washington state uh benefits so everything that they do is going to be for women within the state of washington all right so sunday february 11th 1 to 5 p.m columbia tower club in seattle northwest women's stars of food and wine and that's www.nwwomenstarsoffoodandwine.com all right, that's that's where you can see the whole list. So 25 winemakers, 25 women involved in the wine industry, whether they're winemakers or they could be a CEO, couldn't they, right? Well, they're not really the winemakers, so they will be there. I see. But they may not be behind the What if the they were years before and they started it? Well, we're pretty friendly. Right, you got, okay. And uh, here's some of the events. So you can mix and mingle with the chefs and taste other bites. Uh, you got some artisan beers and ciders, so it's more than just wine? So we actually have uh, two breweries. We have a cidery and a distillery and then also a mixologist. Oh. Perfect. And then finally, what's fun for me is I see Test Your Moxie with Sommelier Exclusive Blind Tastings. Yes. Mm. What we'll be doing is all the women sommeliers that are participating will be two or three bottles out of their cellar. We'll wrap them. They'll be walking around the crowd and giving free uh, blind taste for people and see if they can guess what is under the wrap. Under the wrap. Okay. Well, that sounds really fun. Well, cool. David LeClaire, it's Sunday, February 11th. I will be there over at the Columbia Tower Club on 5th and Columbia, 75th and 6th floors. Uh, thanks so much for joining me and happy hey, hour radio. Happy to be there. Hey, folks, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, next week, I got some cool cats. I've got Joe Pasaka of Elysian Brewing and Kurt Dammeyer, who is uh, the founder of Kurt's, or Beecher's Cheese. <laughs> you believe it? Hey, folks, thanks for listening. And as always, remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! <laughs>